Okay, God. Thanks, Phil. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you. My name is Abby Odio. I am the pastor of college and career here at Bethany Green Lake. Uh, This morning, we are going to wrap up this sermon series we've been in for several weeks now called Drawn to the Margins, where we're really looking at um, this calling that we have individually, but also as a church, uh, to encounter God and God's kingdom in unconventional spaces. And so today, looking at the story of Nicodemus, we're going to wrap that series up. Um, And as we do that, I just invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are mindful in this moment of um, just the mysteries of this calling that we have to follow you. Uh, This story certainly touches on that, but we experience that. And, And like Nicodemus, sometimes the confusion. And so insofar... As your spirit is here and we trust that it is, God, we ask that you would bring clarity to us, that you would move us and shape us in such a way that we would be drawn to indeed follow you more wholeheartedly uh, wherever it is that you will lead us as a people and as a church. God, we're grateful to be your children. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So over the past couple weeks, if you're uh, one of those people who follows the news at all, um, you know that Mount Everest has kind of unfortunately gotten quite a bit of press And this is due to the result of several tragic deaths of climbers who were attempting to reach the summit. Some of you may have seen this picture uh, in the news last week. This is a photo of the line of those climbers. And the tragedy is that folks are actually um, dying while waiting to either get to the top or waiting in line while they're coming back down the mountain. They're running out of oxygen. This week in the news, I read an article with a simple headline, Everest is over. That's what it said. And the tagline read, with crowds, trash, and selfies at the summit, the once untamable mountain has lost its cultural power. Now, as I was reading this article about Mount Everest, I couldn't help but think about the church. And not our church in particular, um, but the church more broadly, Most of us have heard recent statistics about this steep drop in church attendance. Gallup did a poll um, that found in in 2000, 69% of American citizens attended church a few times a month. That was down to 52% in 2018. Now we know this, right? And we know that the reasons for this are many and layered. But as I've talked with friends who have been a part of this exodus, the common denominator I see amongst many of them is not actually a lack of interest in the person of Jesus Christ or really in the concept of faith, but rather a feeling that the church is no longer the venue for connecting with God, no longer the place where they experience that. Like somewhere in our preoccupation with politics or endless conversations about who is in and who is out, we've somehow lost touch with this reality, to borrow a metaphor from the article, of a God who was once untamable like that mountain. Even uh, when Everest was first discovered as this kind of mountain climber's mecca, its luring quality was actually its mystery, was the reality that climbers had to surrender to something they knew was greater and more powerful than they were. And friends, if we look back at the, the beginning of the church, this too was its greatest strength, the mystery This this reality that they were being led by a powerful God, not a God of formulas and platitudes, not a God of frightened moralism, but instead a God who found people and then infused their life with meaning, direction, 
power, joy, possibility. The article about Mount Everest ended with this powerful line. It said this, whether Everest continues to sell out or gets shut down, its peak has lost its hold on the world's imagination. And friends, as I read those words, I can't help but again think about the church. And I wholeheartedly believe our greatest threat is not that, you know, our worship music is too old school or too modern. Or that, you know, the teaching isn't great week after week. Or that our giving goes down. Or that our attendance goes down. Our greatest threat is that we become a community that no longer knows and represents the person of Jesus Christ in a way that grabs hold of the world's imagination. That brings us to our text for today from John 3. And the story is compelling because Nicodemus is a person who has become all too aware of this sort of stagnant, unimaginative religion. Though he's highly respected um, kind of religious icon in his community, he has this gnawing desire and we see it in the story for something more, something greater. And so he brings this desire to Jesus and as we unpack this story, we'll see it's loaded with metaphors that sort of guide his journey of transformation. A journey which ultimately leads him not back to the center of religion, as we'll see, but actually to the margins of it. So with that framework in mind, the three images that we're going to unpack this morning, you'll find these in your bulletin if you want to follow along, are this, night, rebirth, and wind. Night, rebirth, and wind. In the very first part of the story, John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness of night. Now this is a really important detail because later in John 19, when we're reintroduced to Nicodemus, John reminds us that he is the one who came to Jesus in the night, as if to draw our attention back to that detail. It means something. And John doesn't directly break down this symbol for us, but if we look at the book of John as a whole, we see there are certain clues which help us make sense of that word, which help us make sense of the night. Night is the time when Judas, the disciple who betrays Jesus, departs him and sets in motion events that will lead to Jesus' death. That's chapter 13. So night is kind of this space where motives are surfaced. Night is the time when the disciples go fishing and yet catch nothing. That's John chapter 21. John here hints that night is a time when human deficiencies are exposed, when we kind of reach our limits as people. Now, keeping those details in mind, John also tells us a bit about the person of Nicodemus, about who he is. We're told he's a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. The title Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word, which literally translates to be set apart. So the Pharisees, they were these religious folks, they were distinguished by their strict adherence to the Jewish law. The law was extensive, it was specific, they followed it to a T. And so to be a Pharisee in a way was to approach life with this question, what is permissible? What can I do? What can I not do? How do I act in order to avoid condemnation and maintain holiness? That question drove their existence. And so as long as they knew the rules, as long as they maintained clarity about the law, they were able to maintain this sense of control about their own destiny. They were able to live in a comfortable, self-made world. This is Nicodemus's story. And yet we're told Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. 
This is John's way of communicating to us, despite all his efforts to hold his life together, despite the fact that he's in church every Sunday, despite his status, his intellect, his outward upkeep of appearances, despite the fact that he literally has the first five books of the Bible memorized, something's missing. He's living in the dark. When I was a young kid, probably eight years old or so, my brother and I shared a room because I was afraid of the dark. And we had these bunk beds, and I'll never forget this one night I woke up, and in the dark, I was very disoriented, and you could see in our bedroom, there was a big window, and you know, uh, you can kind of see the outline of like the night light on the other side. Um, and then the doorway, which was open, and when the door was open, you could kind of see the same sort of outline. So I mistook the door for the window. I thought that the window was the door. And um, I approached it trying to get out, and it, it didn't go well, right? I ran into the window. And instead of realizing my mistake, in my disorientation, I panicked and I literally began banging on the window trying to free myself, still convinced it was the door. A bit of time passed, at which point I'm yelling and crying um, and my six-year-old brother wakes up and turns the light on and looks at me like, who are you and what have you done with my sister? But I tell this story because in a way, my own confusion as a kid in that moment reflects the inner world of Nicodemus that we see in this scene. Like the thing he thought would get him out of the dark. For me, it was the window. For Nicodemus, it was religion. The thing he thought would get him out of the dark was actually the thing that was keeping him in it. Friends, this is our story. Maybe it's not religion, but it's something else. He believes he knows what he needs in order to live a life of fullness, and yet for some reason, it keeps coming up short. Perhaps like Judas, he knows he can outwardly follow the law while inwardly having all kinds of different motives, judgments about other people, selfish inclinations. Perhaps like the disciples who cast their nets and caught no fish, he's going through these religious motions but not seeing any fruit in his life, not growing in faith or compassion or joy or generosity. Ever felt like that? <laughs> This is the significance of the night. It's the time, it's the space, it's the place where distractions are minimized and I'm confronted with the serious shortcomings of my self-constructed, self-reliant way of being in the world. It can be disorienting, it can be confusing. And what's further interesting is that when Nicodemus initially shows up in the night, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher and that you must be from God because no one could perform the signs that you're performing unless God were not with him. That's a proclamation of faith. Now I want to pause for a moment and take seriously the implication of that statement. Nicodemus appears to know all the right things. He knows Jesus is from God. He knows intellectually that God is the source of Jesus' authority. And yet, despite his knowing, he's still in the dark. If we back up slightly to the end of John chapter 2, you'll, you'll see Jesus has performed signs. He's turned water into wine. And as a result, result of that, John tells us that, man, there were these crowds of people and they all just said, we believe. Like, we see what you're doing and we believe. And you'd think Jesus would be like, yes, Congrats, this is what I came for. Like the ultimate altar call. But that's not the case. The text says in the very next verse, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He knew us. He knew that we were prone 
turn to the wrong things time and time and time again. I remember back when Sam and I were dating, we decided to read through the book of Mark together. Uh, Mark is a book in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus' life. And so we're doing this and we come to Mark chapter 10 where Jesus instructs a very wealthy man to sell his possessions, give that money to the poor and then come follow him. And I'll never forget this, Sam and I are sitting on a plane, we're reading this out loud like a good little Christian couple or something. Um, and we, got, we read through that and Sam stopped and he said, why do you think more Christians don't actually do this? Like they don't actually take these words seriously. And at the time I was fresh out of seminary and feeling pretty good about all that I knew like Nicodemus, and so um, I launched into this really profound explanation, I thought, of how, um, you know, this isn't a passage we're supposed to take literally, but rather it's an invitation for us to do some self-reflection on hypothetically, is there anything that if asked to give up by God, we would still hold on to, right? That's the invitation. Yada, yada. Um, I finished this soliloquy, feeling pretty good. I said to Sam, does that make sense? And he turned to me and he says, it makes sense if you're looking for a good excuse not to take Jesus seriously. <laughs> I was like, boom. I don't know if this is gonna work, man. <laughs> now I tell this story because in a way, I was Nicodemus in that moment, do you see? Like I constructed a paradigm, a way of being in the world that was safe and self-preserving. And then instead of allowing those words from Mark 10 to challenge me, to shape me, to move me to actually exist differently in the world, I explained them away. I forced them to, to fit into the paradigm of safe and comfortable religion that I'd created. And as a religious community, friends, I think it's easy to say we know all the right things about God intellectually without ever letting that impact the state of our hearts or the work of our hands. We get comfortable. Now please don't mishear me, I'm not talking about salvation here, right? I absolutely believe by faith and faith alone we are saved because of what God has done through Christ on the cross, absolutely. And that being true, if we simply embrace that truth without allowing it to challenge our paradigms, it's cheap grace. We continue to, to, like Nicodemus, live in this place of confusion and stagnation. We become that line at the top of Mount Everest. So I'll invite each of us to consider where are the spaces in your stories where you're living in the darkness of night, where you're pounding on that window thinking it's the thing that'll save you. It won't. For Nicodemus, it was status, control, comfort, religion. For you it might be similar or it could be other things. This need to always be perfect. A coping habit, you know, that, or a behavior that provides momentary relief but no deep fulfillment. An attitude of superiority towards others that helps you feel more worthy but slowly eating you away. What is it? We all have these spaces of darkness and as we work to identify those, we see the second important symbol in the story, which is this rebirth. Jesus indicates that the way out of the dark of night is this thing called rebirth. Now, I know for some of us that phrase carries strong associations. Um, in the 1960s, there was a revival, first in the US and then worldwide, and that language of born again uh, became synonymous with this kind of one-time conversion experience where a person was saved from hell and all that represented. Um, and was ensured a place in heaven for all eternity. And that's 
good and well and certainly part of what Jesus is saying here, but not exhaustive of what this text is getting at. Jesus tells Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. The word again can also be translated just as easily from above, without being born from above. As we unpack this metaphor of rebirth, it's helpful to look at two different aspects of birth. The first is this notion of painful labor. The second is this notion um, of a newborn as being fully beloved. Several years ago, I had a pastor friend of mine who's kind of like a mentor, and he and I were talking at one point, and he said, you know, um, writing a sermon every week is kind of like giving birth week after week because I suppose he was trying to say that, you know, uh, sermon writing is hard and you kind of got to grit it out and um, you're not sure if you're going to get there and it can be painful at times. Um, I have to tell you, you know, I've, I've written a fair number of sermons in my life and um, I've also given birth and I just want to clarify on the record <laughs> that those are absolutely two very different things. <laughs> The reason I say this, the reason I share this is because whether we know it um, by legend or we know it from other people uh, or just our own experience, when it comes to giving birth, there's sacrifice involved. There's pain, right? There's something that must give it, be given up so that new life can exist. And all of that is relevant for us because when God calls Nicodemus to be born again or born from above, part of what he is saying is that there are some things indeed, Nicodemus, that you're gonna need to let go of. Birthing involves sacrifice. And even when it's good and necessary sacrifice, it can still be hard. So Nicodemus, I want you to be part of this grand story I'm writing in the world, but it will require you to shed some things that have helped you to live with this illusion of safety and security in the world. Things like your insider mentality, things like your privileged status. It's interesting, if you look back over the trajectory of scripture, you'll actually see this very same birth metaphor is used to shed light on Israel's story in the, the Old Testament. Israel are the people that God chose to follow him. The book of Hosea in particular works with this theme of fertility. In chapter 13, uh, while speaking about the people of Israel or the people who God has called, Hosea writes this. He says, the pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the proper time he does not present himself at the mouth of the womb. In other words, the prophet is saying, Israel, you were ready for this birth. You were ready to show the world this alternate way of being in the world as a community of justice, as a people who take risks on behalf of their neighbor, as children who don't shop around for other gods, but you live in committed relationship with the creator God. The time was here. You were ready, and instead you insisted on the safety of the womb. You stayed there on keeping your nighttime ways. Don't, the prophet says to Israel. Don't, Jesus says to Nicodemus. Consider this instead, the pain and sacrifice of labor is worth the life that you will find on the other side. So, so this rebirth metaphor involves pain and sacrifice, but the second and equally important part of this metaphor is this invitation to accept our newborn identity as people who are fully beloved. Now think about this. Think about a child who is being born into the world. Chris touched on this last week. He did a great job. If you missed that, I encourage you to listen to it online. But a child who's come into the world, they are utterly, utterly dependent. 
Like in a very literal way, their survival depends on their parents or their caretakers to show up and to meet their physical and emotional needs. Uh, The author John Steinbeck has a great quote in his book, East of Eden, where he says this, he says, the greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved. And that rejection is the hell he fears. Friends, that's not just poetic language, that's true language. That's proven language. Remember, uh, for Nicodemus, life was all about knowing the rules, about following the law, about avoiding condemnation. It was the paradigm that helped him feel okay. And Jesus is inviting him to this rebirth and to, to painfully relinquish all that, to let go of that which has helped him feel safe and secure and valuable in the world. But to do that, to undergo that, would be utterly foolish if Nicodemus can't trust that there will be something else or someone else on the other side of that pain who will secure his identity in a way that is safe and full of love. It would be foolish. Today we heard um, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, but if we keep reading in that section of the text, we come to that famous verse, John 3, 16. We, many of us have that memorized. Those words are actually spoken to Nicodemus in this moment. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he sent his one and only son. The next verse, to this man who so fears condemnation, God did not send his son into the world, Nicodemus, to condemn the world, but to save it. In other words, the pain will be worth it. You're safe with me. I love you more than you could possibly know. Let's do this. See, the hard part about this invitation for Nicodemus, and I think us as well, is that we want to be able to trust the sufficiency of Christ's love first. We want the guarantee before we go through the pains of labor in order to be reborn. Like, okay, God, first show me that your love will meet me in my loneliness before I reconsider my destructive dating habits. Or show me that I have enough money to take care of my family, and then maybe I'll start thinking about living more generously. And the problem with this approach is that until we're utterly dependent on God, we will not trust God as the source of life. Not fully. We might do lip service to that truth in the same way Nicodemus does, but we won't live with a deep sense of security and availability to God's purposes. When I was in college uh, one summer, I spent working at a camp for high schoolers with uh, mental, um, intellectual, and physical disabilities. And one of my roles that summer was to help our campers go through this high ropes course. Many of you know what this is. It's like an obstacle course in the, like, 40 feet above the ground. <laughs> And as our campers would work through the course, they were always wearing a full chest harness and their legs were in a harness. And then they were attached by these set of like four foot long ropes to a cable up above. So if they ever slipped or fell, they would always, they would always be attached. They would always be safe. And I'll never forget uh, this one girl. Her name was Abby, which is probably why I remember her. Um, but she, was, she showed up like many of the campers. She was afraid to go through the course. And I watched as one of her adult leaders came over and showed her the ropes, like explained to her, here's how this works. Um, And then she said, if anything happens, you'll always be attached. She kept saying that, you'll always be attached. You'll always be attached, the ropes will catch you. 
And after a few of these pep talks, Abby worked up the courage and she started moving through the course. And with each step she took, she literally out loud reminded herself, I'm attached, I'm attached, I'm attached. And she went through the whole course like this. She came to the end, she was doing a great job. She came to the end, uh, right kind of by where I was, there was a series of logs that she had to walk across. So she started to walk across, I'm attached, I'm attached. Uh, And then she got to the last log and she took a step and her foot slipped. And she let out this scream of fear and panic for about a split second before her ropes caught her, like they're supposed to do. And I'll never forget this. She looked up at all of us and in this very different, very surprised, very joyful and confident tone, she announced, I'm attached. (laughs) Right? Like, I believed it all along, but I didn't really believe it until this moment when I underwent the pain of the fall, the pain of rebirth, you could say. And there's something on the other side that caught me. Like, now I get it, right? Friends, the good news of Jesus Christ is this, of rebirth is this, you are attached. And that doesn't just change your eternal destiny, it changes your reality today, here, now, your calling. It frees you from the pressures and the demands and the addictions of the world that controlled you before and allows you to let go despite trusting that you will be caught, that you will be loved, that you will be held on the other side. That brings us to the third and final important image in the story, which is this wind. Wind. Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with every person born of the Spirit. Now, in the original Greek, the word for wind is also the word for spirit. And in the New Testament, it's often used to talk in particular about God's Spirit. So in John 3, Jesus is informing Nicodemus, once you are born again, you are free and available now in a new way to the spirit of God, the wind of God, which will move you places that do not fit with the conventional wisdom of the world you've been living in. Get ready for that. As we make choices, as we consider how we invest our time, as we read and apply scripture to our lives, we're now free from binding restraints. In Nicodemus's case, it was the restraints of religion and ego. God says you're free from that and the wind will blow you. And part of the reason Nicodemus has such trouble understanding Jesus's message is that he's trying to figure out how he can take his life as it currently stands and kind of fit Jesus into it in sort of this tidy, add-on, like nice complimentary sort of way. But that's not right because what do we know about wind? Well, it's not nice or tidy. It's disruptive. It's unpredictable. It can be annoying even. We're at the the mercy of its diction and will. God is not a piece of the puzzle. Do you see that? God is not this tidy add-on. God is the creator and the director of the very puzzle itself. It's an important distinction. Dr. Jeff Kuse is a, a theology professor at SPU. He's a member of our community. He recently came out with a, a great book called Living the Questions. And in it, he poses this series of relevant and difficult questions. He writes this, as you come out of the dark of night and face Jesus, are you trying to make him a puzzle to make him a piece to fit into your world? Or are you allowing yourself to be remade and reborn as Nicodemus was? What does it look like when you catch a glimpse of what's possible in the kingdom of God? Is it something small, something that fits into your can-do work ethic? Or is it something so vast, so impossible, that only God can make it possible? 
And for Nicodemus, he's ever so slowly learning to let go, to experience this rebirth, and then to be available to the wind, to the something that only God can make possible. Today, some of you might know this, is actually Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is um, a day in the church calendar. We celebrate it the seventh Sunday after Easter, and it commemorates that moment in Act 2 when God's Spirit comes upon a group celebrating a Jewish holiday in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, we're told God's Spirit descended like a violent wind and enabled folks to speak um, in a language that everyone could understand. It was this beautiful and mysterious kind of moment of unity amongst God's people. Now, I know this story can raise all kinds of questions for us, um, but this morning I want to focus on the simple truth of Pentecost, which is this. The Spirit of God moves in a way that empowers, to borrow from Acts 2, that enables people to do things they otherwise would not have done, they otherwise could not have done. And we see this spirit movement in Nicodemus' story as well. In John chapter 19, following the death of Jesus on the cross, Nicodemus again shows up in the story with a man named Joseph. And together, they remove Jesus' body and they bury it after he's died. We're told that Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes to apply to Jesus' body. Now, it's worth just pausing and noting this transformation that we see in Nicodemus' story throughout the book of John. In chapter 3, we meet a man who comes in the night, right? Confused, worried about his reputation, feeling stuck, intrigued by Jesus, but unsure. Fast forward now to the end of the story. Moved by the wind of God's spirit against the wishes of his peers, compromising his own safety, Nicodemus shows up at the cross of Christ with enough spices to bury a king publicly. Do you see that? Moved by the wind of God, uh, of God's spirit to the margins of his own religion, he shows up in a place he would never have gone if he hadn't been reborn. And we see this is a sort of transformation over and over again. Surrender, rebirth, a new freedom, a refreshing freedom, a mysterious freedom. And in some ways, this is the perfect story with which to end our series because time and time again, when rebirth, rebirth happens in a person's life, it moves them to identify with, to love, and to be ha act on behalf of people in the margins. This is a story of my friend Kirsten who moved to a local neighborhood where the schools have one of the lowest ratings in the uh, country, in the county, excuse me. And she struggled with this but ultimately decided in her own words, because of the nudging of the Holy Spirit, to keep her kids in that school and then join the vibrant effort to make it a space where teachers and families are supported and where kids can thrive. Friends, she's seeing transformation. She's learning things. This is the story of Bernard Kinvey, a priest in the Central African Republic, where a long and bloody tension has existed between Muslims and Christians. He's moved to the margins of his own religion to protect Muslims who are currently the minority in danger. They're fleeing for their lives, many of them having to leave behind weaker family members. He's taking care of the elders, the people with disabilities, looking to relocate them with their refugee families who have been dispersed. Friends, where is the wind moving you? Where is it moving us as a community? 
What is the spirit of God enabling you to do that you otherwise would not do that breaks convention? That's the question for us. My husband Sam loves to sail. He's getting a lot of shout outs this sermon, by the way. Uh, he loves to sail. And back when we were dating, he kept inviting me uh, to go out sailing with him. He just had finished his like captain license or whatever. It's not that I didn't trust him, um, but if his car driving was indicative in any way of his like captaining ability, I have to admit, I was like slightly to significantly afraid. Um, but eventually I agreed to go out sailing with him. And uh, when we went, it was this beautiful day in the San Francisco Bay. It was my first time on a sailboat. It was a small boat. And as some of you might recall, if you've sailed before, it's perfectly normal, which I didn't know, for the boat to angle quite dramatically. Um, and there was a fair amount of wind that day, and the boat kept sort of rocking uh, in what felt like these really intense waves. And um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm quite afraid. I'm holding on to the rail. Um, and Sam saw this. He noticed that I was afraid, possibly because of the very unpastor-like words that were coming out of my mouth. Um, but every time I would grab the rail, he'd yell from the captain's seat this reassurance saying, this is perfect. The wind is what we want. This is perfect. The wind is what we want. Like, this is what the boat is designed to do. It may not feel safe, but it's actually the safest place to be. The wind is what we want. And as I tell that story, I'm brought back to the words from that Everest article. A mountain that was once awe-inspiring, unpredictable, has lost its irre irresistible draw, has lost its hold on the world's imagination. Let's not be a church who loses a hold on the world's imagination, on this city's imagination. And friends, if we're committed to that, here is my final word for us today. The wind is what we want. The wind is what we want. May feel unsafe at times, but it's what the boat's designed to do. It's where we're supposed to be. It's a place Jesus calls us to go. Not the safety of the womb or the safety of a paycheck, not frightened moralism or secular self-indulgence, not image maintenance undergirded by severe insecurity and defensiveness, none of that. Reborn, friends. We want the wind. We want God's spirit moving, shaping, growing, leading, drawing us towards the margins, not hindered by these lesser attachments, but trusting there's a God who has and will continue to catch us every single time. So we're free to go, to follow. Let's pray to that end. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who is indeed in the wind, that you are as real as the wind. God, this world needs more wind. I just come before you in this moment and admit my own tendency to, to create a world that feels safe by my own estimation. And then to live in that contentedly. God, I pray against that. I pray that as we sense your spirit this morning, as you sense us nudging into something deeper, deeper and greater, that we would be able to just loosen our grip on those things, to trust you wholeheartedly, 
to not become a church or a people who are stagnant in our belief, but who are mighty because of the force of the wind that's behind us. God, draw us there, show us the way. We, we don't know what that looks like, we need you. Give us a vision for that as a church. We love you, we're thankful for your son Jesus, we're thankful for the resurrection, we're thankful that it's that same power that's with us in this very moment. We pray these things in your name. Amen.